Welcome to Photo Taco, the only show with photography tips you can learn in the time it takes to eat a taco. Or perhaps a burrito. Photo Taco! Hey everybody, welcome in to another episode of Photo Taco on the Master Photography Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jeff Harmon. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes of your day with me. And in this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Don Kamarechka, who is the host of Photo Geek Weekly. If you haven't checked out that podcast, you really need to. And is a master macro photographer, just published a book. Congratulations on that, Don. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And uh, it's always great to have your voice on my podcast as well, which has happened a number of times. And uh, thanks for the congrats on the book. However, I wouldn't say published. It's been funded and it is in the process of Ah. being published and uh, actively being worked on to make it as good as it could possibly be. Um, But within that book will be today's topic, uh, which I'm really excited to talk about here. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be really, really fun. So for new listeners, for people who are just discovering Photo Talk or maybe just coming you know, discovering the the podcast because of this episode. Don's been on a few times before. We talked in general about macro photography, and you can go catch that podcast in the show notes. I'll have a link to it if you want to kind of learn some of the basics about how you're going to get started in macro photography. But today we're going to dive in just a little deeper into a more specific segment or genre of macro photography with water droplet refraction photography, which has a, a really big name, <laughs> so can be sounding really scary to photographers, but we're going to try to inspire some people and, uh, and help them to figure out how they can go and dive into this today. So it's going to be fun. I like to think of this as uh, the number of moving parts to make this work make it difficult from the outside because um, the analogy I like to give is if you're blindfolded and you're juggling like nine eggs. And you drop one and the whole thing collapses around you and you take off the blindfold and it's just a mess and you have no idea what the cause of the problem was. Um, so, you know, from from the outside looking in, I can always give somebody, if they're taking a workshop with me, I can point to say, hey, it was egg number seven. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're going to go through every one of those, identifying, um, you know, as quickly and succinctly as we can exactly how to overcome any challenges that you encounter. Effectively, though, Jeff, um, this type of photography, water droplet refraction, big name, it, it, it boils down to making a water droplet a lens. Uh, the more spherical a water droplet is, the more it can act like a lens, and whatever is behind that water droplet will show up in that water droplet. And then immediately you become an artist on two different fields. You have to create something beautiful to photograph, and then you have to be the photographer to document it uh, after you've sculpted your beautiful piece of artwork. It's amazing, amazing stuff. So it, listeners, if you, you to see an example, I'm sure you've seen it before. You just didn't know what to call it. And you're probably thinking too, I have no idea how they did this. It looks so cool. You can go over to Don's site. He's got a bunch of examples, really beautiful, beautiful work over at doncom.ca. So that's D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. And then there's a on the menu there, there's a macro water link and you can go you can go click on that or there'll be a link in the show notes too and you can see the type of work that we're talking about here but i wanted to don i wanted to walk through three of them three of the i don't know how many you have out there i didn't count but three of the photos that were kind of my favorite of the group and i wanted to just briefly like it's audio format here but try to describe the image and be able to to talk a little bit about the setup and and the what what it took to produce that image and then we're going to dive into like how the listeners can do that but let's start with one of them it's called jewels of the summer what you have titled there 
beautiful, beautiful image that has uh, a bunch of water droplets, looks like on a blade of grass, and an ant that is like huge <laughs> in the image. What did it take to produce this image? All right. Well, let's leave the ant out of the equation first, because that's the wild card. That's the hardest part of this. Um, The easiest part is getting a blade of grass. I mean, they are everywhere, but it is a very specific blade of grass, uh, blue fescue. Um, now, most bluegrasses that have uh, like a powder coating on them that you can wipe off with your finger, um, that powder coating plays very favorably to the surface tension of water, creating spherical water droplets just by spraying it with a mist bottle. So uh, the, the same properties can be found from a lot of wildflower seeds, uh, lupin flower leaves when they're very, very small, spider webs, etc. Not everything will give you a spherical uh, water droplet. Most things when you spray with water will just create like a sheen or a puddle. And that's not going to be effective because it's not spherical. The more spherical, the better a lens it makes. Um, so I'm very deliberate with the choice of the surface that I'm, I'm using, and blue fescue was one of those choices. Um, this was done outside, one of the very few that I've done outside. Most of them are inside in my studio. My wife didn't like the idea of me bringing ants in the house. <laughs> so... This was done outside. Normally, I would be using a uh, just a dollar store misting bottle, which is all you'd need for this. But I had the convenience of having my uh, my hose outside with a mist setting on that. So that's what I ended up using. And um, and then you put a flower in the background. And this was a, a magenta daisy-like flower that was just growing in my garden. Uh, and it was placed a few inches behind the water droplets. And lo and behold, it shows up inside of those water droplets. Because, again, they act like lenses. They, they refract. Um, that setup, I've done, like I could probably do it blindfolded. I've done it so many times to, to understand exactly how those ingredients come into play. Um, there's a certain amount of alignment where if you do not have um, the the flower, it's out of focus in the background. That is the background of the image. But if it's too far off to one side, left, right, up, or down, it's not going to be framing the image very nicely. The, the flowers that I choose typically have a different colored center than their petals, and that will create a nice background contrast. Even though it's out of focus, the gradient and the way that it plays with the scene is very important, and its placement in the background is paramount to your success here. Um, so so the alignment of the camera through the droplet, through the flower in the background has to be considered first and foremost. And that often means you're rotating the camera around the water droplet as the center of rotation to change the positioning of the background therein. Um, and to do that, it's kind of hard to do that on a tripod. So these shots are all done handheld. Uh-huh. Okay, and we're going to talk a lot more about technique in, in just a, a little bit here. Next image that I wanted to go over here was called is called Hidden World. And is this a blade of grass again? It is the same type of blade of grass. It's, okay. a, it's been a favorite of mine. Uh, so you already know that part of it. But once you've done this kind of work once, you always want to do it differently the next right, time. Right? Right. You don't want to do the exact same process. So I thought, well, what if I play around with reflections and refractions so that I've got the, the you know, the... Uh, the water droplets, as you might expect them to be. But what if I could get them reflecting in a pool of water? And this image is done on my kitchen table, just in a big bowl of water that I bought from Value Village. Um, uh, it wasn't full of water. I bought the bowl, and then I added the water. <laughs> right. uh, 
and uh, and so then I, I positioned everything under uh, under the water using a third hand tool. And if you're wondering, they're also called helping hand tools. Uh, these are basically two little alligator clips on a swivel. Some of them come with a magnifying glass that I usually just discard. Um, but uh, they're used for soldering and fly tying for fishing and that that type of stuff. Uh, but photographically, for this kind of work, it's one of those quintessential ingredients. And on Amazon, you can get them for about $7. It's not an expensive piece of, uh, piece of equipment. Um, that is underneath the surface of the water, holding that blade of grass in an arc. So the clamps are under the water, and part of the grass is just coming up in this nice little archway, uh, like a little bridge. And, uh, you know, th- there was a couple of eureka fail moments when I was designing an image like this. One of them is that the flower in the background has no water droplets on it. I wanted it to be a nice, clean, and pristine uh, refraction, as, as best as it could be. So the flower was moved away, and then it had to be moved back into place as soon as the water droplets were perfect. But back on that idea of angle, right? You want to have that nice shooting angle where you can have the flower centered in the background. To do that, the flower had to be halfway submerged under the water which is where my problem comes in with displacement because the volume of the flower halfway submerged displaces that same amount of water, which raises the water level. Eureka, I've eaten all of my droplets because the water level has, <laughs> has just has failed me. So uh, resetting that experiment, putting everything back in place with less water in the bowl, and then slowly trickling water back in until it hit, hit just the right level. Um, so there's a lot of pitfalls uh, in doing this. And, you know, I could spend uh, the ant photo we were talking about that was about a half a day uh, yeah. the one that we're talking about now took me about three or four hours uh-huh. worth of just experimental tinkering even before i've picked up the camera gotcha and and you know i think that's a really important thing not just in macro i get we, we see a lot of listeners both here on photo taco and in the the other podcast i work a lot on with master photography there's a lot of questions people have about you know i tried to do this thing and doesn't matter what it is but this thing and it didn't come out like I wanted. How should I fix it? And well, revel in your mistakes, yeah, first of all. That, right? That's the You've thing. made a mistake. Congratulations, because now you have a problem to solve. And if you don't like problem solving, maybe macro photography isn't for you. <laughs> well, and not just macro. Most of the actually most of the questions are portrait. And they're they're trying to figure out how to incorporate flash into their photography and they're just starting on that. And I, I'm always encouraging, like, well, just play around with it. Like, okay, you, you took the photo. You weren't real excited about the result. Go now move the light. Move the, you know, add another light. See, see what happens if you move the, the model further away from the background. Just you start changing things and observe what happens until you arrive at the result you want. And that can take some time. And that's okay. That's part of the learning process. Yeah, and uh, you're talking about lighting and angles. It's really important for this kind of subject as well because the background has to be brighter than the foreground. In some cases, the background has to be exclusively illuminated. If I'm using a wildflower seed, for example, you want pretty well zero light hitting that seed itself and just the light coming through the droplets becoming your main subject. And I mean, the, the reasoning for this is pretty logical. Because you want the droplets to stand out. You want them to be one of the prominent pieces of this puzzle that you're putting together. But if the surface that the droplet is attached to, the foreground, is brighter than the background, then the refracted image inside of the droplets, it's going to be darker than the subject that they're attached to. If you flip that around and the droplets are brighter than what they're hanging on to, they really pop. There's a lot of drama there. And so that means you've got to start experimenting with shaping your light. 
doesn't mean you have to do this expensively. Uh, I've, uh, you know, in, in the last few years, I've switched from using flash for a lot of my demonstration purposes to using ultra bright flashlights because it's trivial to get like a thousand lumen LED flashlight that you can just put in a little tabletop tripod with a little clamp holding it all together. Uh, and they're very directional and it's very easy to, uh, to, you know, position the light exactly where you want it to be. And if there is a little bit too much on the foreground, well, I buy those third hand tools by the dozen. Actually, I lie. I bought a thousand of them directly <laughs> from China because I give them away to students. But, um, the uh, the idea is you could have another one holding just a little piece of paper that's just kind of flagging the light so that it stops hitting the foreground and then you can start to shape the light right in front of you. And this is a very small stage. You know, you might be like a two feet by two foot kind of yeah. uh, workspace that you're dealing with and there's no model to annoy save for maybe an ant or two. So uh, you're free to tinker and experiment so long as you know exactly what the puzzle pieces are. Even if you don't know how they fit together yet, well, that's... It's where the experimentation comes in. It's very cool. And I think so a lot of what you just talked about is demonstrated in the third image that I wanted to go through here. And that one you titled Glow Stick. And it, it's a good example, again, about how you have something much brighter in the background and the kind of drama that that can produce. Each one of those water droplets that are on... Is this a blade of grass again? <laughs> uh, this is actually a leaf of eucalyptus. Okay. okay. Um, eucalyptus also has that powder-like coating and creates those beautiful spherical droplets. Sometimes you get a lemon, uh, and you get this uh, with the blade of grass too. Not every blade of grass, even from the right type, is going to give you nice spherical droplets. So oftentimes I'll take an entire sprig of eucalyptus and just start dousing it with uh, the spray bottle, and maybe one leaf will give me exactly what I'm looking for versus the others that might be halfway there or not at all okay and and that was an important part too was the the misting um you're not directly placing these water droplets on there or do you sometimes well yeah there's two different ways to do this so number one uh the images that you selected uh are all using a misting spray bottle but you're not spraying up close you're spraying from a great distance okay. and you're spraying a lot more than you might expect um, you're basically going to cover your table with a puddle of water to get enough water where you want it to be because it has to be the smallest possible droplets that are hitting the subject. I've even, uh, on one or two occasions, used an ultrasonic humidifier and put my subject right in the opening, uh, you know, cranked up to 11 where all that mist uh, is going to accrue over, you know, 10 or 20 minutes uh -huh. because it has to grow like natural dew would form on your grass when you wake up in the morning before the sun hits it and it's really beautiful it's the same slow process so you might have to like empty out an entire spray bottle to get enough water on your subject where you want it to be but that's not the only approach um, you can be a little bit more uh, crafty with your placement of water droplets uh, and I've tried to do this a number of times even just trying to get a droplet to dangle off of a wet piece of paper towel and place it that didn't work um, using an eyedropper the droplets want to stick to the uh, to the glass or the plastic or even like a little laboratory pipette none of those were really terribly effective um the real answer if you want to sculpt droplets and maybe create an array from mist and then add one or two that you want or i've even made images with just a single droplet and that works too but those droplets are placed using a hypodermic needle 
And uh, people might say, well, where do I find a hypodermic needle? I mean, I, I don't have any use for those. Amazon or eBay, they're everywhere and they're inexpensive. You could get like a 100-piece kit for like 8 or $9 on Amazon. Um, and blunt-tipped ones, you don't want to poke yourself. The smallest gauge ones tend to work the best because the metal of the needle is hydrophobic. Water wants to escape from it very, very easily. And if the tip is smaller, it gives it even less surface area to adhere to, and it'll pretty well just jump onto whatever you want to put it onto very, very quickly. So the right tools for the job, of course. Um, but uh, you also have a, a big challenge that we haven't touched on yet, and that would be depth of field. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to that in just a second. Let's talk. Let's just go through. You've already mentioned a few gear items of the the physical things that you need to have a chance at doing this the first one there the hypodermic needle will have a link in the show notes to it on amazon so that, that you can find those and and uh one that that don recommends and uh the next let's go through this list here don that we've we put together in the show notes that everyone can go to the next one is the nightcore srt 7gt flashlight you don't have to remember that number again it's in the show notes but tell me about this one yeah, their marketing team really gets away from themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, but Night Nightcore is a company, just a Chinese manufacturer, but they make some really high-quality lights. And um, when you're using an LED flashlight, there's uh, basically two or three things to consider. Number one, uh, how bright is it? Uh, and I think this one's around 1,000 lumens, which is plenty. In fact, you, you won't even need it all the way at the highest setting. Uh, counterintuitively, if you do have it there, the amount of heat that it generates in the vicinity of the water droplets will make them evaporate faster. Um, but a lot of LED flashlights, like the kind that you might get at your local convenience store or hardware store, they look fine to us, but they have a notable flicker to your camera. Uh, just like uh, fluorescent bulbs will have a, uh, a flicker cycle, so do a lot of the uh, less expensive LED flashlights, and so you want to avoid that. Um, but the one that I recommended, is it, it serves kind of a triple purpose, because it has built-in red, green, and blue LED lights that are secondary light sources. They're much dimmer, but if you want to play around with light painting and it's something that you haven't done on a macro scale yet the light can do it or if you wanted to go and uh and try your hand at astrophotography and you need a red flashlight which preserves your night vision so that you don't disrupt that when you're trying to operate the camera and still see the stars well you can just put the flashlight in its red mode so it's a multi-purpose tool um and uh trouble is most flashlights don't have a tripod mount on them for convenience with macro work thankfully a quick solution to that is a crab clamp, which is just a little uh, pincer crab thingy that twists and, and uh, locks in onto something around the barrel of a flashlight, and it's got tripod mounts on it. And so put that on a cheap little tabletop tripod, like a Manfrotto Pixie or whatever else that you've got. You might already have something. Uh, now you have a little macro light setup, and you only need one light to make this work. Excellent. Okay, so we and we have a, a link to the crab clamp there too in the show notes, so go check that out if you want to get started on this. How about the Nikkor micro USB charging battery? What's what's that for? Uh, well, these flashlights they use a big beefy battery. It's called a one eight six five zero battery, um, which is much bigger than a regular double A. Uh, but you probably have never had one of these before, right, and right. I don't want people to go out and have to buy like a separate charger for this extra type of battery. Um, this battery has a little micro USB charging port right on the battery itself. And so it's very easy to just plug that in. You probably have a micro USB cable kicking around your house somewhere already anyhow. Uh, and it's just very convenient to charge up these batteries and have it ready to go. Lithium ion, and they last a very long time. Excellent. Okay. 
And that you mentioned the Manfrotto Pixie tripod, so Link will be there too. And the third hand tool, we talked about those. So links to all of this stuff that is going to help get people started into a project. I really, really want to try this out. I'm I'm really excited to give this a go, especially because wintertime is setting in here in Utah. And uh, I'm going to be indoors a whole lot more. <laughs> so uh, so I really want to... This would be great. This would be a tabletop thing I can do. In I have a, a little space here in the house that I've dedicated now to some photography projects. And, and I want to give this a try. I want to see what I can produce. It's going to be so fun. So uh, listeners can, can follow along too. If, if you're doing this, I'd love to see examples of that. You can do that in the Facebook group. You can tag us on Instagram. If, if you've done this... I'd love to see what you've experimented with and what you've been able to come up with. And that, that's going to be great. All right. And I, I, I want to bring it back around to that idea I had mentioned of focus stacking, because this is an important consideration on things at this scale. It's not a requirement that you have to go through extra hoops and combining extra images together. If you're unfamiliar with what, with what focus stacking is, your depth of field at these scales is so shallow, it's very hard to get the outer edge of a water droplet as well as the refraction inside the water droplet in focus at the same time. Right. Some of my favorite images in this area, um, they're a single photograph, no focus stacking required. Others might be two or three or as many as 10 maybe uh, images to extend that depth just a little bit. Just to let people know that every step you take towards success within this image, and you can get great success in a single frame, there's always another step for you to take farther and farther down this journey. This really is a photographic rabbit hole that uh, you know will start with your own creativity in uh, water droplet architecture, let's call it. Yeah. Um, and then it starts to introduce the camera stuff. Uh, and then it goes back and forth. There's so many different ways for you to play and build on the concepts and build a narrative into the work which i think is the ultimate goal right and make some produce some images create some images that are pretty unique there's not there's there's a lot of photographers out there doing portraits there's a lot of photographers doing landscape there's there's a ton of them there's much fewer (laughs) that are doing this kind of work but even if there were um, you, you think about the number of photos that you've seen of very classic landscape locations, like any famous waterfall or Horseshoe Bend or Antelope Canyon, or you right. name the location, you can picture exactly what that location is in your mind because you've seen a thousand photographs of it, and most of those photos don't differ very much right. at all. But if you give a uh, hundred people the exact same ingredients and the exact same instruction to create, they're all going to walk away with something uniquely different and theirs to call their own oh yeah so so much fun okay we talked about it in the last episode with macro but just to briefly cover it here do they need a macro lens to have a shot at this no you don't uh which is part of the fun of this Uh, in fact i was doing some demos recently with a a really cheap it was the uh, micro four thirds it's a kit lens i don't even think you could buy it separately the 12 to 32 millimeter um uh, lumix g lens and I just put an extension tube on that, and it turned into a brilliant macro lens for this kind of work. So um, there's a few ways for you to get closer. Uh, there are close-up filters. You can spend $5. You can spend $150 on close-up filters. They're all going to degrade the image quality to some degree. Whenever you add optics into an existing formula, it's not going to be perfect, but it's one way to get there. Uh, extension tubes are my preferred way to turn any non-macro lens into a macro lens because um, it shifts your entire focusing range closer. You can focus much closer than you could before there's no optics involved and so you get very good clean results and if you were kind of 
bitten by the macro bug when you do that and you decide to go out and buy a macro lens to take that journey farther, then you could add extension tubes onto that lens and make it (laughs) into a super macro lens and you already have the equipment in order to do that. Um, But yeah, for as as little as $5, uh, you you could buy like filter kits there's four of them uh, at different magnifications for between $10 and $15 for the kit on eBay. Um, just dip your toe in the water. See if this is something that you want to explore uh, and just take it from there one step at a time. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's approach now. So let, let's say uh, directions for a photographer who's never done macro. They've seen these images that we just talked about that. Oh, yes. I really, really want to produce those. Went and got some of the gear we just talked about. And now they're ready to give it a try for the very first time. How, how do you recommend they do it? I want to try to break it down into like maybe some steps. Like we talked about, you, you, this, this is going to take a little bit of trial and error. This is going to take some practice, some trying things out, see that didn't work, and try the next thing and, and keep changing stuff. So how, how should they start this out, Don? What, what's the first step? Simplify the equation to start. Uh, put your camera in aperture priority mode. Choose an aperture between f8 and f11, uh, and an ISO higher than you might normally be using, like uh, 800, 1600, or something like that. These images survive noise very, very well, and I'd much rather have a uh, a grainy or noisy image than a blurry one. Right. So uh, that, in terms of camera settings, that would be a good place to start. But focus is also a key differential between uh, this type of macro photography and how you'd normally approach uh, larger subjects, portraits and landscapes, etc. So um, here's the trick. You put your lens onto manual focus and you put the lens to its closest focusing point. Usually on the barrel, there's a symbol that says infinity, whatever the furthest away from that is. If it's not a dedicated macro lens, it won't say like one-to-one magnification, but whatever the furthest away from infinity can be, that's where you want to be. Leave it there. Tape it there if you have to. Um, And now, in order to achieve focus, you physically move the entire camera forward and backward. This does two things. It it maintains your highest magnification possible because, again, these droplets are small, like that ant compared to the size of the droplets. They're tiny, and so you want to make sure that they fill the frame as best as they can. Um, But also... If you were dealing with manual focus and trying to to find exactly what that focusing point is by holding the camera static, even in autofocus, it if you're just a hair too close, it'll just jump to the background, not where you want it to be. Uh, and if you're manually focusing, you're shaking the end of the lens, which should be the most stable element there. Hold the end of the lens with your left hand. Be sure that it's stable. Rest your wrist or your arm on the table that you've got this whole setup for, for even more stability. Um, and just physically, just move forward and backward until your subject passes through focus. Um, it might take some practice. You don't Uh, maybe even practice on something a little bit larger to see exactly what that working distance is, the distance between the subject and the end of the lens and kind of get a little bit of muscle memory for that. Just, you know, pull up a book and try to focus on the cover of the book um, and uh, see exactly what that distance is and then apply that to your subject. That is the best way to focus for macro photography, but it's a way that if you haven't tried macro, you'd have no idea that that's the best way to do it because you've never done, you've never done it before. So maybe don't start with putting the water on the on the plant. 
Well, wouldn't that suck if you got the perfect water droplets and then they're fumbling with the camera? And they're, they're by, gone by, by the, the time you're ready, yeah. Exactly, because yeah. they evaporate. Uh, so yeah, get a little bit of um, sort of elbow grease behind you at first just to figure out your exposure. Um, oftentimes when I do workshops on this subject, uh, people uh, will set up a scene and uh, they will uh, get focus and exposure right before adding droplets to the scene. And then even once they add the droplets, it's still a lot of trial, error, and experimentation for that first go-round that they don't get anything useful before those water droplets evaporate. Well, I shouldn't say that. They get a lot of useful knowledge and experience, but not a useful image. It takes a number of iterations before you get there. Okay, so practicing on the focusing, the technique, so that you get that kind of down... Then what what would be the next step? I I was thinking as I was creating the show notes, I was like, okay, would would like adding light be the next thing, or what? How would you go from there? Yeah, well, I would add add the light first, and then uh, so okay. you've got at least that in the frame, so that you can judge exposure and focus simultaneously. Uh, keep in mind that uh, I'm always shooting continuous, and uh, my keeper ratio in macro photography is like one to a hundred. So uh-huh. every one shot that I keep, there's a hundred that I that that I discard. Um, And uh, that's partly due to the fact that focus is so hard to get exactly at that critical point. And if you take one shot, it's not really likely that you would have gotten that, especially as you're just starting into this. So take far more shots than you think you need. Fill your camera buffer. You can throw them away afterwards, but it's much harder to get them, (laughs) um, especially to get that right focus exactly where it needs to be if you're not shooting enough and kind of hedging your bets based on everybody's got a slight tremor in their hand or you're breathing or your heart is beating, let's hope. I mean, you're not going to be completely solid. Um, And, you know, photography in the digital era uh, I mean, to, to press that shutter button and take 100 shots doesn't cost you anything anymore. Right, right. Okay, so it'd be kind of like maybe trying to get the focus on the very front of the scene, push down the button, continuous uh, shooting mode, and move towards the back? Is that, yeah, is that yeah, kind well, of the technique? Yeah, when I say move towards the back, the movement is very subtle. The right. amount that you have to move is the thickness of your subject. And if that thickness of the subject is the thickness of a flower petal, the amount that you have to move is an eighth or a sixteenth of, uh, of an inch. It's not a huge amount. So simply just by pushing your face or moving your torso ever so slightly forward, or if I've got my, and I usually do this on a table, uh, if I've got my left hand holding the end of the lens, all I have to do is pull with my index finger and my thumb that are holding that lens forward a little bit, and the entire camera and everything else will move forward with that. I'm not trying to force the whole camera. It has to be a subtle movement. Uh, and the more subtle, the more controllable it will be. Okay, once someone gets that, maybe they have a, a blade of grass positioned in front of a flower, had a light on it, practicing, going back and forth, and finally get the technique down. Then do you just start spraying the, the misting on it? Yep. So once you've gotten the uh, the, the framing and, and the focus down pat, you've given that a dry run, um, then you start to add the uh, the water. Now, keep in mind you're going to spray far more than you think you need. And your first attempt, you're going to be disappointed because even after hearing me say that, you still didn't do it enough. Um, and uh, you really have to soak things. I'm going to say it again. You really have to <laughs> soak things right. in order, especially because if you're doing it from a distance, you're not waterlogging it, that slow um, uh, accumulation of tiny little droplets will turn into bigger ones as more collide with them, but they'll stay spherical. They'll stay well-placed. Um, and that is the only way 
way to get a, a vast array of droplets. Yes, you can place them specifically on certain subjects with a hypodermic needle. But those blades of grass don't take kindly to that. That uh, Any droplet that you try to place with a hypodermic needle will just roll right off. So the only way to approach that, and likely the eucalyptus as well, um, would be through that uh, longer uh, sort of misting process where I, I'm not sure what it would be in ounces, but these bottles are probably around 300 milliliters, about 250 milliliters worth of water um, uh, to get one subject nicely presented is uh, is not uncommon. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, and then, and making sure we talked about, make sure the background is brighter than the foreground so that it really stands out. And, uh, and then, okay, now, now let's go into, you have your images, you have like tons of images you have to go through. How do you determine which ones to use in your focus stacking? So uh, bring them all into whatever digital asset manager that you're using and um, find whatever the, the best point is. The, the, the one where you find the focus is the most acceptable across the board. And then start working on either side of that. You don't have to have the entire scene in focus. In fact, the flower in the background is supposed to be out of focus. Right. And that's part of, the, uh, part of the game here. And in some of my images, even the one glow stick... Uh, that uh, you've referenced. Some of the water droplets on the very far side of that uh, eucalyptus leaf, they're out of focus too. They didn't need to be completely sharp in order to complete the image. Um, so just start working back and forth on them. Um, the process for focus stacking, if that is your end game, uh, would be to take the images, um, say, into Photoshop or on one photo raw, software that you already have that does focus stacking. And uh, I've got tutorials on exactly what that process would be. Chances are you didn't select them all. The memory game, especially if they're out of order, you might have missed a slice of focus. Um, but in Photoshop, there's it's a really simple process. Again, maybe I'll give you the link to put it in the show notes sure, uh, sure. where I've done some demos on that. Um, but if you've missed a slice, you'll see it. And then you can go back into uh, your digital asset manager and uh, and find that missing slice now that you have a map showing what you've missed and add in typically when I'm doing snowflakes, I'll miss three to six different frames uh, without fail. I can't recall a time where I've gotten them all perfectly in the first run. That's like winning the lottery. Don't expect that. You're going to miss some slices. Uh, but hopefully you drastically overshot the scene, taking, I don't know, like 100 images when you know you need 10. Um, and then you've got 90 more you can pick through that might have those missing puzzle pieces that uh, that were not in, in the same sequence. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah, if you can give me that link, I'll, I'll make sure that's in the show notes so that uh, that the listeners can go check that out. Um, all right, so yeah, I mean that that it sounds kind of simple that we've gone through as we talk about it, but I can imagine like this would be a day project for me just to get close, <laughs> just to, well, to get started. <laughs> Uh, one other thing we didn't mention that is a big pitfall from the beginning is you've got to see through the water droplet. You've got to see the background. You have to have a line of sight to that background. Uh, and so if you've got some very nice water droplets on a flower petal, but you can't see through to the background, you're just going to uh, magnify the flower petal itself, and you're not going to see any refraction whatsoever. There has to, It has to be hanging like right below or uh, right above the subject so that you've got that clear visual path towards the background. Uh, and that's one of those 
those things where you just didn't design the subject properly. You, no matter how well you've got the photographic technique down pat, there's no way for you to get that to work unless you designed your water droplet sculpture uh, to, to include that idea uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. Okay. So, it, yeah, don't be surprised for it to take some time. Absolutely, and be able to spend make some time. mistakes, and uh, like I said towards the beginning, revel in those mistakes because <laughs> right. uh, if you are not enjoying the process, you'll never get to a destination that you uh, that you're happy with because you you will have given up uh, well before that uh, that that uh, aha moment is uh, is achieved. Yeah. All right. Well, I, we're going to close up the show here, but I want to give you a chance, Don, before we do. You offer water droplet workshops. Tell the listeners a little bit about that. Well, if you uh, if this all sounds good to you, but after you're done listening to this uh, podcast and you sit down to start it up yourself and you have a blank slate of a mind, which a lot of people do when you're yeah. trying to listen to photographic tutorials and you want some help from me personally, I'm more than happy to do that. I run them here in my own studio in Barrie, Ontario, Canada, but I travel around quite a bit. Um, you know, every, every fall I do some workshops in Princeton, New Jersey along those lines. Uh, I'll be at the um, uh, Out of Chicago uh, conference. Um, at the Chicago Botanic Gardens uh, in 2020 as well. I'm not sure if they're accepting registrations, but if you're curious where I'm going to be teaching this kind of stuff, and you might not necessarily be local to me, uh, just send me an email. Uh, just as, as you mentioned earlier, go to my website, doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. You can see the list of my workshops there. Uh, some of them that I'm not directly taking registrations for might not be listed. So just uh, send me a note and I will point you in the right direction. Excellent. Yeah, that would be... I've actually heard from a few listeners that have attended your workshop now, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. So that's good. It's like riding a bike. It's very hard to to figure out your balance the first time, but once you've got it, you know, it's almost like muscle memory there on in. Yeah, and they get so excited. Like, uh, I've, I've seen a few of them now posting lots of macro work, and they're just all in and love it. So that's really fabulous. It's it's fun, especially if, if there's photographers, if there's listeners who have kind of had the passion die down a little bit for whatever kinds of photography you've done, here's a way to, to regain that a little bit. And uh, that, that's really exciting. It's good stuff. Thank you so much for joining the show again, Don. My pleasure. I, I wish everybody all the best out shooting this kind of work or whatever you're up to. Uh, but keep in mind... I promise you frustration. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, you know, before we go too, is there any way that the listeners can get your book? Yes, the Kickstarter campaign has ended, but I do have pre-orders available right now. Um, and so I've kind of piggybacked that for the pre-order process on the website where I was selling my Snowflake book. And so the pre-orders are there at skycrystals.ca. So if you go to skycrystals.ca, uh, you can get the ebook for my uh, my Snowflake book. Uh, the hardcover is out of print, but you could get either the ebook or the hardcover of my upcoming macro photography book that will be out in Q1 of 2020, not too far away. All right. So if the workshop may not work out for you, but you'd like a little bit more detail on what to do, that's the book to go get. That's gonna. That's great. I already got. I pre. I ordered mine on the Kickstarter. So it, thank you very much. I'm excited for that. All right. Uh, I want to remind everyone that you can find everything Photo Taco related over at phototacopodcast.com. We do have a, a listener Facebook group that you can find too. If you just search for Photo Taco listeners, you can find that group and there'll be a link in the show notes too for that. We do ask that you answer a question. We want to keep it to listeners. So I, I want the, the spammers and the bots out of that. 
And I know not everyone does Facebook, but if you do, it's kind of a fun place to go and, and be able to ask questions and, and work on things. You can also send me a note at phototacopodcast at gmail.com if you want to ask about a show or give me any feedback. Welcome for, to, to do that. You can check out the other podcast that I'm on frequently called Master Photography Podcast. We talk about all kinds of tips and tricks for many, many things. Photo Taco is more of a technical kind of show where, where we go through things like like we just did, obviously. But uh, but Master Photography is uh, very practical tips and tricks and, and evaluations of uh, different software and, and uh, techniques that we see. Don, where can people find you? Uh, well, uh, all of my social media stuff, and I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram, um, Flickr and Twitter predominantly. Uh, all of those are linked to at doncom.ca. Um, and if you could put the links to all of those places in the show notes, I would greatly appreciate that. We'll do that. Yes, for sure. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you again later. Views expressed on this program by independent host guests and callers do not necessarily reflect their views of improved photography LLC or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where a commission is earned. Olay!